This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Wednesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever's on your heart, all you need to do is to call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, tonight I'm going to be teaching absolutely one of my favorite Bible studies in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to do the first 15 verses, and then I'm going to come back next week and kind of do a a deeper overview on it. But this is just one of those passages of Scripture that is so rich. You can watch it at calvarysa.com tonight live stream, or you can join us. We've always got room here in the sanctuary on Wednesdays and tomorrow because um, it's Thursday will be the date day show. Paula will be live in studio uh, with me. And if you need any encouragement, have any questions uh, for her specifically, that would be the time to do it. Let's go to the questions that we got sent in while we wait your phone calls. Here's a question from... Yeah, oh, thank you. My my producer just stopped me and corrected me. Uh, this is a question that we had from yesterday, and I, I really wanted to, to expand on it because it was just sort of toward the end of the program. So this one was from Victor yesterday. How much of the business of the church do you share with your wife, especially the things that are disappointing? Um, Victor, I, I, I answered it yesterday, I hope, satisfactorily. But what I really want to talk about is you know, we, we've got a, 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 an ideal in the church that, you know, husbands and wives can't have secrets, and that's true. But that does not mean that a husband has to tell a wife everything or a wife has to tell a husband everything. One of our ministries to our spouse is protection. And, you know, uh, especially in the, the the environment of the church, we've got to be able to have um, the ability for people to come to us for counseling, sharing their heart, sharing their pain, um, with the knowledge that we're not going to talk about it to other people. And, and uh, Victor, I don't know if this is what you were referring to, but 
Um, it's just, it's not Paula's business what somebody tells me in private. Now, a lot of times, because people know that we're inseparable, uh, they will say, please share this with Paula, or I will ask in some cases, is this something I can share with Paula for prayer, or do you want me not to do that? But I always ask, and I want my pastors to do the same thing, and, um, you know, we, we have to always think about what's going to... Um, be a source of encouragement um, rather than something that's hurtful. You know, I I decided a long time ago I'm a, I'm a fairly public person. Uh, and uh, because of what I do, uh, there's a lot of people that take shots at me. I don't want to share that with Paula. And the reason I don't want to share that with Paula is because her gift is encouragement and I want her to be able to use her gifts when she sees those people. I don't want somebody walking up to her and her thinking under her breath, well, that's the person who said bad things about my husband. So I just think that's one of the areas that we need to really seek the Lord on wisdom. But the idea that wives and husbands have to tell everybody or each other everything uh, is, is, is not reasonable at all. Uh, and we have to always think, well, how will this affect her or how will this affect him? Um, what are the possible uh, consequences of sharing this? Is this edifying or is this something that's going to make it difficult for her to really minister to somebody? So, Victor, those are the things that we really need to think about. And, um, you know, I I share everything with Paula in terms of um, she is the very first person I go to. If I'm thinking about uh, ordaining somebody or appointing them an elder, um, uh, she's the first person I go to. Before I would go to my elders, I would go to Paula. And I just want to know, perfectly consider this, what do you think? And uh, I, I know that Paula has always and only wanted the best for me. And we're partners in this thing. So uh, I want her to feel a, a part of, of that partnership. Um, but when it comes to personal information about other people, we don't discuss that. She does counseling a lot with ladies. I do counseling a lot. Uh, and, and we don't just immediately after counseling, we run to each other and say, you can't believe what this is happening and this is going on. We, we simply don't do that and never will. So, Victor, I wanted to clarify that and expand on my answer yesterday just a little bit. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Annette. She said, is God in hell since he's omnipresent? Um, God is everywhere. That's what omnipresence is. And he is over everything. So, yes, in the terms of authority, God is in hell. But that's not his dwelling place. Um, but but his authority extends to every corner of the world, the universe, um, spiritual world, and the and the physical or material world. Um, so so yeah, God is over all things. Um, we don't really have a hell now. We've got a place of torment in what's called the abyss. The Greek word is the abuso, uh, identified for us in Luke chapter sixteen. But it it will actually be God who who creates the lake of fire after the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. Um, so God is in a supervisory capacity uh, controlling all things. But uh, no, he's not hanging out in hell. Uh, he's not uh, down there checking people out. Uh, he knows everything, 
and um, and he's in control of everything. So in that sense, he is. He has no relationship with people who are in torment or people who are in hell because that's what hell is going to be. It's eternal separation from God. That's why we call it hell, to be in a place where there is no God, where there's only darkness and uh, is is the, the worst possible condition. So God's not there in a, uh, a relational sense. But but rest assured, he is over all things um, forever, things of heaven, things of earth, and all that which is in between. Thank you, Annette. I appreciate that question. Here is a question that um, has been called in anonymously just now. I know that it's wrong, but I would like to know where specifically abortion is mentioned in the Bible. Um, anonymous, um, we, we've got two instances of, of uh, child murder in the Bible. One where the, 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 the pagan peoples and eventually even some of God's people, Israel, uh, both northern and southern kingdoms, were offering their babies to the fire, to the false gods, in sacrifice. Um, so we, we know that's um, um, a murder. Um, but it's also murder. The word abortion is not used. But thou shalt not murder. Um, you know, the King James says, thou shalt not kill. But the idea there in the word in Hebrew is a murder. And uh, so murder is wrong. And and uh, all you have to do is look at the Ten Commandments as well as um, the the babies that were being offered. God says it's something that I never even thought about. And it doesn't mean that God didn't know what was going on. It's just that was just something that was so foreign to his heart. So um, that's where abortion is covered in the Bible without the word itself being mentioned. David says that we're formed in the womb. Before I was formed in my mother's womb, you knew me, he said. Uh, We're formed in the womb. God is in control. And um, uh, to kill a living person, as uh, the those who are pro-abortion would, would say, it's not a person, it's just a fetus. Well, the Bible disagrees, and as Christians, it's our responsibility to agree with God. Um, and, and I know a lot of professing Christians, when I say I know, um, I, I'm exposed to people who make comments on some of my Bible studies and statements and and uh, um, will will write me emails and things. Um, well, I support uh, woman's choice, uh, and, and my response is always, "How can you do that? How can you call yourself a Christian and disagree with God? You can't disagree with our Christ." And so, abortion is mentioned in the Bible, uh, covered under the 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 uh, umbrella of murder. Thou shalt not murder. And to take an innocent life. Uh, from the very beginning, God says, uh, when a man sheds the blood of another man, his own blood then will be taken by man. Uh, God has made it really, really clear from the very beginning how he feels about murder. So that's what it is. It is a murder. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Lucas. He says, how far do we go with political and social correctness in order not to offend others? For example, a handicapped person who objects to be called handicapped and prefers the word challenged. Um, 
Lucas, you know, I think we should be peacemakers. I mean, we should, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with all people, make peace with all people. And we ought to take the initiative to do that. Um, but but nobody has the right to change what's true. Um, you know, uh, uh, in the example you gave, uh, uh, um, a handicapped parking license or parking permit is called handicapped because that person is handicapped. Uh, if somebody said, I would prefer to be referred to as challenge, I'd try to remember that, but I'd probably say, well, give me a break because the rest of the world says it's handicapped. Now, let me get to something that's even more important when we talk about changing pronouns, changing the language that we use because a boy wants to be called a girl or a girl wants to be called a boy. I don't think as Christians we can do that. And you see, Lucas, we as Christians, we know our heart. God knows our heart. And if our heart is right with God, Uh, We're under no obligation to change the way we speak just so as not to offend others. Every time Jesus spoke, people were offended. Every time the Apostle Paul spoke, people were offended. My goodness, every time I speak publicly, whether it's on this radio program or teaching a Bible study, people get offended. And I just don't think we have to worry about it. So um, I'll call anybody what they want me to call them. If, if there's a boy who wants to be called Loretta, um, okay, if that's your name, I'll call you Loretta. Uh, but I won't call him a her because that would be to take the easy way out, to, to be conformed to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So I won't do that. So uh, I just, I honestly don't worry about it. If if I say something, um, and I have a few times where people have said, um, um, I'll give you an example. Somebody listening to this radio program, this goes back a lot of years now, got really angry at me because I said, I kept using the term somebody's paralyzed with fear. And he called in and was really offended uh, because I used the term paralyzed. He said, I'm paralyzed, and I don't think you should compare the two things. I think that's insensitive. Um, and and I, I actually started to think about it and look for another word to use, um, but there is no other word. That's the language that we have. And so uh, um, I, I made sure he knew it was not my intent to offend anybody, but that's just the way we use our language. And if somebody... Uh, doesn't know my heart, and they're going to judge me. Uh, there's nothing at all I can do that. So I think, Lucas, we need not to worry much about being politically or socially correct um, at all. Um, I, I think we need to watch what we say. I think we need to be kind. But at the same time, we have standards, and we stand with, and we stand for Jesus. Good question. Thank you. B says... I can't figure out why Jesus prays for us in heaven. Can I have your thoughts? Um, he doesn't really pray for us. Um, he, he ever lives, Hebrews 7, he says he, he ever lives to make intercession for us. But rather than, than Jesus praying for us, he is a, an everlasting statement of intercession. In other words, there's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. It was like Job, when Job cried out, when he saw the 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 highness, the the holiness of God, if only there were a man who could bridge the gap between me and God. Um, And Jesus is that man. So by being a statement of intercession, it means he has once and forever provided 
the access so that our prayers can be heard. Uh, when we're in our sinful condition, we have no ability to pray. God can't hear our prayers. We can use the words. You can use our mouth. But, but our prayers aren't getting through. Jesus allowed those prayers to be heard in heaven. And so uh, he is a statement of intercession on our behalf, enabling our prayers to be heard. But is he praying for us? No. He's not saying, um, Father, Ron just... Ron, Ron just asked um, me to, to ask you this. Um, so we don't do that. And that's that's not what it is. It's just here's what we know. We have the confidence if he hears our prayers. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears our prayers. And if we know he hears our prayers, then we know that we have what we've asked for. So we're the ones who pray. Jesus is the one who made it possible. So I think that's really, really important. He's not there saying, oh, please, Father, please let, let Ron get this one. Let's let's do a solid for him this time. That's not what he's doing at all, B. So he's not praying. Let me also say this. Um, the idea that there are saints in heaven who are praying for us or Jesus' mother Mary in heaven praying for us, that is absolute heresy. Uh, it's simply untrue. And uh, while religious tradition um, and sentiment makes that sound uh, very comforting, uh, it's a lie. So it's not comforting at all. B, thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Uh, Ricky asks, was Luke a Gentile? And in Acts, why does he use the pronoun we in describing the stories? Um, a couple of things. Um, and the, the, the we part is simple. He changes it in, in the book of Acts. When he joins Paul's missionary uh, journey, the third missionary journey, the pronoun changes because it's no longer they did this or they did that. This means that Luke was a participant. So all that information that we're getting in the book of Acts from Luke uh, was firsthand information uh, when he was actually a part of the expeditions. He was part, of course, of the the the, the uh, ship breaking apart, the storms that they had to endure, uh, being washed up on the island of Malta, all those things. And so those pronouns are important because it indicates that he was a participant. Um, uh, we believe that Luke was a Gentile. Um, Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, indicates that Luke was not a Jew. Uh, I, I think I think personally that's pretty clear. Uh, there's no one of the circumcision left except, and he mentions a name, um, but but we know Luke was with him uh, at that point. So um, we're, we're we're pretty sure, Ricky. While it's never said Luke was a Gentile or Luke was a Jew, we're pretty sure based on that information that um, Luke was a Gentile. He was a physician. We know that about him. He was also one of the great investigative reporters of all time. Uh, I am, uh, as soon as we are done here uh, in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark on Sundays, I'm going to be going uh, again into the book of Acts. And and part of the fascination for me with Acts is the the just the solid history and the recounting, the reporting of events, and the accuracy is is overwhelming. So 
Um, Ricky Luke's uh, role in the Apostle Paul's life was significant. Um, he was in the last part of Paul's life. Um, but I always uh, tease the people here, you know, as I'm getting older and older, um, I know God loves me because he gave me a doctor. We got Dr. Peter and Dr. Sheba uh, with Malta Medical. And, uh, and and I said, you know, God gave me a doctor. He must love me like he like loved Paul because uh, he gave Paul a doctor when, when Paul needed it the most. And Luke was that physician. Thank you for that question. I think that's an interesting one. The book of Acts is fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, that's one of the two books. Revelation is the other. That's one of the two books that I exhort our church, the people here, to read at least twice a year. So here's a cynical question from Mac. He says, do most pastors think they have all the answers? Uh, no, well, we know where to get the answers. I think, Mac, that's maybe what you're what you're seeing. Um, um, I think most pastors are committed to teaching the word. They believe in the word, um, and and um, yeah, I think I think um, most pastors know exactly where to get the answers. But it's also true that we know that the answers don't come from us. So this isn't a we think we know it all kind of thing. This is just one of those things where um, we can direct people where the answers are. And I always get tickled when somebody will say, but, but, well, that's just your interpretation. And I'll say, well, what's your interpretation? And then I'll ask him, so how long have you been studying your Bible? What do you know about, tell me where this is and what that means. And, and they don't have those answers. Um, but, but no, we're not arrogant narcissists who think that we know everything. But Mac, as a pastor, we got to know who does know everything. And that's the Lord. You know, this question, um, there are people, let me let me rephrase. There are people who get really frustrated with me because of my certainty in the word. We like ambiguity. Uh, it's like when, when uh, you get a test that's sprung on you in school, you hope it's a multiple choice test. Uh, gives you a little bit of narrowing the, 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 the field of answers. Um, well, in our discussions. Is it okay to do this or should I do that? Um, I think we like the ambiguity because the reality is we want to do what we want to do. And so we're always looking for loopholes. If you read the Bible um, uh, from the Old Testament through the New, there's always people who are looking for loopholes because they want the freedom to do what they want and hope it works out. And because I'm so certain, I'm absolutely 100% certain that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, I've had a, a very powerful experience um, that demonstrated as I, I set my heart to searching. Uh, and yet there are people that don't want to believe it's it's the Word of God. Oh, it's a, it's it's the Bible and it's got some good ideas. But we don't have to do everything. And that's because they don't want to do a whole bunch of stuff in the Bible. And so they just rationalize it's okay when we're we're talking about family relationships there are roles that God gives us. And when somebody like me says, this is our role, there are people who say, well, I don't want that role. So they're looking for loopholes. Um, that doesn't mean I have all the answers, Mac. It just means that uh, I have been 100% committed to telling people what the Bible says, not an interpretation of the Bible, but what it says. When people come to me and say, well, that's just your interpretation. I say, well, let's forget interpretation for a moment. You just read it out loud to me. 
You just read it out loud to me and tell me what it says. And they'll never do it because what it says is what it says. Flee from sexual immorality. And and people who who uh, don't want to flee from sexual immorality just think, well, well, I don't think, or or I know other people who are Christians and they believe. It says, what does it say? And we've got to be completely committed to what it says. Not what we want it to say or not what we hope it says. But we need to be committed to what it really says. And see when you do that. That certainty just kills some people. That they they it's too constricting for them. And you can see they, they get frustrated and usually they don't stay around here very long. Um but um to some of their credit they kinda hang around and and um eventually let the Holy Spirit grab their hearts. Let me see, I have one minute. Okay, I don't think I have a one-minute question. So let me say this. We'll get back here on the other side. We would love your phone calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And obviously, KSLR mobile app will connect you to the studio producer uh, the quickest Reminder, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching out of 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman, the Syrian general, uh, who is a fascinating character to me and really has a story to tell for those of us who live now, right here, uh, who deal with pride. So uh, I hope uh, you'll tune in. Okay, we've got 30 minutes left in the program today. One more time, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life, and I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show. Uh, Let's go to the phones. We've got Ray calling on line one from out of town. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, I got two quick questions. Uh... Well, I actually called in a while ago about the abortion, which I believe is murder, too. But yep. I, I was going to ask, uh, is it wrong or sometimes you can't help but to buy stuff from places that support abo- abortion, you know, the grocery stores or places like that? And mm-hmm. uh, uh, my other question is, uh, where does it say in the Bible that the devil is chained up? Okay, thank you, Ray. Couple of couple of things. Um, the the um, uh, it, there's there's almost nowhere you can go. Um, you know, if, whether it's um, retirement account investments or or um, uh, theme parks, grocery stores, uh, department stores. There's almost nowhere you can go 
that 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 they wouldn't be publicly supportive of abortion, homosexuality, and a whole bunch of other godless things. So, so no, it's not wrong to buy things from those places. Uh, when we buy something, it's because we need it. It's because it's convenient or it's cheaper. Um, but but it's not a sin to do that. There's you know in, in an ideal world. Well, there would be plenty of people that we could purchase things from, but but it's simply not uh, practical to do it. So it's not wrong to do that. I've never been a a fan of calling Christians to boycott people that are different than we are. We we are to be a light in this world, and so um, what we want to do is is um, um, be a light wherever we go. And um, be a good steward of your money, but but no, it's not wrong. You you can do that uh, with no guilt at all. Um, it, it's getting, as I said, harder and harder to find people that don't support godless cases. Um, so so I hope that answers that part of the question. Um, where, where the devil is bound, you're going to find it in Revelation chapter twenty, um, where uh, after Jesus comes back, where the devil is bound for a thousand years. Uh, during the millennial reigns, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, and he, Jesus, sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So that's um, um, at the end. He won't be bound until that time. Um, So that's immediately following the the, uh, end of the Great Tribulation, and he will be bound for a thousand years. And evidently, Ray, when he is uh, let loose uh, at the end of the thousand years, uh, he's really angry because he persuades a whole bunch of people to rebel against God again in the final judgment. And then the white, the great uh, white throne judgment of God happens. Thank you for the questions, Ray. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Cindy on line two from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Cindy. I- I have one of my kind of early morning coffee questions here. <laughs> now, First uh, <laughs> Corinthians 11, verse 14 says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Now, I know there's all this other stuff before and after that, and I, I wasn't really including that in my question. But my question is, didn't Samson and also John the Baptist, did they have that vow uh, that they would never cut their hair. So where, where does that tie into everything? And I wasn't trying to find a discrepancy. It's just one of those things I, I came across. And also, I'm wondering, are you going to do the whole chapter tonight in, in Second Kings? That's, that's just an, an amazing chapter. And, and I was just, mm. um, I was just curious because there's so much yeah. in it. I really <laughs> can't wait for the study. So anyways, Thanks, I'm going to listen on the radio. Okay. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Cindy, you know me well enough to know that I can't talk fast enough to do the whole chapter. I'm going to do just the first 15 verses. It's going to be really an in-depth character study uh, with 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 serious practical application value for us uh, these thousands of years later. So just the first 15 verses tonight, and then next week when I come back, I'll pull the whole chapter together and do more of a, a, a verse-by-verse context study of it. So uh, just the first 15 verses tonight. Um, Naaman is um, a very important Bible study for us. Um, um, the, the, the first Corinthians passage. 
the thing that we need to understand, Paul is speaking generally, and when he talks about doesn't the very nature of things teach you, uh, he's, he's speaking generally. Uh, women have longer hair than men. But we also have to remember that he's not talking about hair at all. In 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about authority and being under authority. So here's what he's saying. He's simply saying, um, the, here the, 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 uh, it, it's a shame for a woman to pray with her head uncovered, um, meaning that would be her saying to the world, I'm not under the authority of my husband. I'm not submitting to the authority of my husband. And then he says the same thing about men. Uh, it's a shame for them to pray with their head uncovered, meaning not being under submission to Christ. And so that's what he's talking about. He's talking about submission. The length of hair or the type of head coverings really um, is dealt with in First Corinthians as a cultural issue. And culturally, then he applies it to a greater um, um, statement regarding being under authority. And he's simply saying that's the purpose of it. Now, one of the things that we've got to to, to remember, the, the practical side of this, because uh, I've had people argue with me, well, you're just softening it. No, I'm not. Jesus had long hair, almost certainly. Um, long hair uh, in, in a Jewish culture uh, was, um, the accept, or was the rule rather than the exception for most men. So when we, we see the pictures of people uh, in that culture with long hair, um, that's because they had long hair. It's just the way it was. They didn't have the modern ability to run to the barber shop. I get my hair cut every single Wednesday. They couldn't do that. So it was just something that they dealt with. So, so he couldn't have been saying that having long hair was a disgrace or a shameful thing for a man. Nor is having short hair for a woman a shameful disgrace. He simply, generally, if you look out, that's the general rule. But he's not making a doctrine out of that as it relates to uh, the length of our hair. So, Cindy, thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Ron in Converse. Uh, he says, Pastor Ron, I know that purgatory is not a Christian belief, but I had someone recently pray over my father's body and mention it. I'm wondering where the concept of purgatory comes from. Uh, I know that it is heretical, but I am wondering uh, how heretical it is. I don't believe in purgatory, but I would love to have you hear your thoughts on the subject. It is heretical. Um, uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed in men once to die and then face judgment. Now, the, the reason you heard it uh, almost certainly that was a Catholic, Ron, um, who was praying uh, over your father's body. And he mentioned it. Uh, Catholics believe that there is a place called purgatory. And there's nothing in the Bible that would, would, would even suggest it to be true. Um, but, but their idea was that maybe they could be prayed out of purgatory. Maybe they could get a second chance uh, at heaven uh, after they died. Now, the genesis of all of this, Ron, was uh, the Catholic Church, and I don't have the specific dates. I can get them for you really quickly. I just don't want to want to give you the wrong ones. But the genesis of this was when the Catholic Church needed money, uh, whether it was from crusades or building projects or whatever, um, they would, they would um, solicit alms 
from the people. And, and one of the ways that, that caused people to, to give very generously was uh, uh, if you do that, we will pray your dead loved ones out of purgatory. And uh, it, it's simply not true. It's heretical. Um, and so it's, it's not something even to show an interest in because it's not true. Uh, once we die, um, our choice has been made. And there's nothing that happens in purgatory at all, uh, even if there were a purgatory, that could change the fact that we have to choose while we're alive where we're going to spend eternity. And incidentally, Ron, hell is simply the idea of hell or eternal torment is simply God honoring the choices that we made in life in death. God isn't going to tell somebody who not wanted to be completely independent from God, didn't want anything to do with God. God isn't going to, after that person dies, say, well, you know what? I know you didn't want anything to do with me, but I'm going to force you for eternity to hang out with me. That's simply not possible. So these are really important things. And the reason they're important, Ron, is because um, that gives false hope. And false hope is worse than no hope at all. So thank you for the question. I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Oliver. Uh, He says, and he's upset with me. You said we cannot marry people from other faiths. Uh, that is so hateful and negative. Uh, so no question, just a statement. Uh, Ron, have you read your Bible? I mean, Oliver, I'm sorry. Have you read your Bible? God is the one who said we're not to be equally yoked together with unbelievers. So are you accusing God of being hateful and negative? Now, I want to give you a little bit of background where I'm coming from, okay? Um, I'm married to a black woman next month. Uh, September 16th will be our 50th wedding anniversary. We've been together for 52 and a half years. Believe me, the unequally yoked comments, we heard them over and over and over. I know what hateful and negative is. I was the object and Paula was the object of, of professing Christian's hatred. When we got to Texas 27 years ago, um, we were actually told by Christians, people that said they were believers, that we're not fit, I'm not fit to preach the gospel because I'm in an unequally yoked marriage. And I'll ask them the same question, ask you, have you read your Bible? So you say I'm hateful and negative. Um, Jesus would say otherwise. Uh, the people that know me would say otherwise. So, Oliver, you've got to decide, do you agree with God or not? Now, the other thing, when you said that I say we cannot marry people from other faiths, the reality is, and I acknowledge this every time I talk about this, the reality is that people do it anyway. We rebel against God all the time. And what I tell them is if they rebel against God, there are going to be consequences. There's going to be a lot of pain in that marriage. Um, Why we would even consider, I mean, if we truly believe that Jesus Christ is God, and he's the way, the truth, and the life, if we truly believe that, nobody gets to the Father except through him, 
Why would we ever want to marry somebody who's not going to be in heaven with us? Nobody can ever answer that question. And people will say sometimes, well, well, that's your opinion, but they think they're okay with God. Well, that doesn't matter. We know they're not. And what that really reveals is that we don't really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father in heaven. I say all the time on this program, Oliver, that only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven. Only born-again Christians. That comes straight from Jesus' mouth, talking to Nicodemus. He said it twice. Is that hateful and negative? As a pastor over these 27 years, I cannot adequately express to you the amount of pain I've dealt with in unequally yoked marriages. And I owe the people the truth. I will not perform an unequally yoked marriage. I'll marry two unbelievers. I do that all the time. We share with people, you know, you're living together. That's not right. God doesn't want that. At least get married. And and, uh, so I'm kind of obligated to marry them when they do that. Um, But they're, they're equally yoked in rebellion against God. But at least we can take the sin that's in God's face away. So there's not a hateful or negative bone in my body, Oliver. So I'm sorry that you feel that way. I'm sorry that I've disappointed you. Uh, But the reality is I actually care about people and don't want to condemn them to a life of pain. If I would have said all the times people come to me for approval, if I would have said, yeah, go ahead. God loves you. It's okay. God loves everybody. Um, I would be setting them up for the most pain that they've ever experienced. And it happens every time there are no exceptions. Now, there are people married to unbelievers that are really nice people. But still, the pain of being unequally yoked is overwhelming. Here's a question from Alan. I almost said Elaine, but I'm not seeing well, and Elaine is my worship pastor. Uh, Matthew 18 says that we're to treat disciplined Christians as unbelievers. What does that mean? Um, Alan, what it means is that we're supposed to stop pretending that they're okay with God just because they come to church. When the church puts a Christian under discipline, it's because they are in willful sin against God. And the discipline is supposed to be extended not just from the the leadership of a church, but to the body of, of, of the church. So what do we do with unbelievers, Alan? We tell them the gospel. And that's what I try to tell people. Now, we've been fortunate. We've we've uh, never really had to put somebody under discipline. Uh, people have left because they, they, they knew that was the next step. But um, um, when we treat somebody as an unbeliever, we tell them about Jesus. We got people who have had to leave this church because of sin and other people who are their friends in the church who are real believers and our counsel to them is not to not to break off the relationship at all but every time that you get an opportunity to speak to them then proclaim the gospel tell them god died so that your sins could be forgiven and you're in sin now they may decide to break the relationship but that's what we do with unbelievers we tell them the gospel we share jesus with them we tell them if they're doing something wrong because we love them, but we're telling them they're doing something wrong. 
So that's what we do with unbelievers. We don't treat them like terrible people. We don't stop loving them. We don't stop praying for them. Uh, we just recognize that their sin has separated them from God, and we want to give them an opportunity to return to God. So we, we let them know over and over and over that all you have to do, First John 1, 9, confess your sins, that is to agree with God about your sin, and he will forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. So that's what that means, Alan. And I think, unfortunately, with um, the doctrines of excommunication and, and putting people out, um, um, calling them out publicly, which is, is um, uh, unnecessary, um, I, I think a lot of times we've got the wrong idea about what it means to treat somebody as an unbeliever. It just means stop pretending they're okay with God when they're not. Tell them the truth that they're not okay with God and and show them the way back. And um, most of the time when you do that, Alan, it is the person in rebellion who will um, decide to cut the relationship short. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul um, expels a man from the church. Uh, he was living in willful sin. It seems clear that a lot of people in the church knew about it, and some were even sort of making jokes about it, bragging about it. And uh, um, Paul said, I've, I've handed this one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And we know we get to Second Corinthians chapter 2, uh, which was only a period of time of about six months between the two letters. We know Paul is then able to say, uh, extend the hand of grace to this man. He's suffered enough. He's repentant. Uh, don't don't let him be overwhelmed with grief. Now go get him. So that kind of discipline, uh, if we honor the Lord in it, Ellen, it works. Thank you. Greg asks, since no one has ever seen God, how do you explain Jacob wrestling with God? Um... Jacob was wrestling with Jesus. Now, every time you see somebody who is talking to the Lord or, or, or face-to-face with him, it's not God the Father in all of his glory. It's the person of Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance called a theophany or Christophany. And so Jacob wrestled with Jesus. Genesis chapter 32, that's a passage of Scripture, Greg, that, that I, I literally have been saying, um, referring to every day of, of my more than 31 years walking with Jesus. He was wrestling with Jesus. And um, so that's the thing. In Isaiah um, uh, chapter 6, he says, uh, um, Surely I'm undone. I'm going to die. Woe is me, for I have seen the Lord. And um, uh, John chapter 12 uh, toward the end of the chapter, I think it's verse 23, but that's off the top of my head. Um, John explains under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, that Isaiah saw Jesus. He saw Jesus. So remember, Jesus enables us to, to have a relationship with God. Jesus, in some cases, uh, enables us to see God. Uh, but not God the Father, not God in all of his glory. Paul writes in the New Testament that God lives in unapproachable light, and because of Jesus, we can approach. So, uh, Greg, he was wrestling with Jesus. Good question. Here's another Oliver. Um, we're all. 
Oh, okay. Here's, I got a question from Oliver. It's a different one, I'm told, by my producer. Um, Oliver says, It seems like most churches are designed to make people comfortable instead of preparing them to be obedient. Can I have your thoughts? Um, Oliver, this is one of my hot-button issues in the church. Um, you're right. Um, um, and this is a tragedy to, to, to confess this. You know, when um, Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Well, certainly Isaiah was as, about as holy as you can be. But but he, he understood he was a sinner. Um, it seems like churches now are more interested in the numbers of people in the seats than they are about doing the work that God has called us to do. And I say that with with tears welling up in my eyes. Um, We want people to go home feeling good. We want them to be excited about coming back next week. Um, We don't want to talk about sin because, well, then they're not going to want to come back. Um, And and, uh, I just, I can see Jesus weeping. Um, my my personal time today was in Jeremiah 23. You can't read that without hearing the heart of God. He says, my heart is broken uh, because of the false teachers. And and um, the, the reality, Oliver, is that um, we're, we're willing to settle for the appearance of success rather than the reality of success by being obedient to the Word of God. Now, um, preaching only the Bible fixes this. Um, I'm, I go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Wherever I ended last week is where I'm going to pick up the next week. And um, I can't skip anything that way. So I, I get plenty of passages where I can exhort people and encourage them and make them feel good. I love preaching those passages. I love the idea that there's uh, there's those goosebump moments for people. Um, but because we teach through the Bible, we don't have the opportunity to skip the things that we'd rather not preach about. I mean, there are things nobody wants to preach about. I don't want to be called by the other Oliver um, um, hateful and, and bigoted, or, or whatever the word, hateful and bigoted, whatever he said. Um um, I, I would much prefer everybody to leave here being really good, knowing God loves them. But God disciplines those he loves. And and uh, my responsibility is to declare the whole counsel of God, not holding anything back. And so, Oliver, I'm with you on this. This is a tragedy. Uh, it is, um, I think, a sign of the times that we're in. Uh, people simply don't want to hear from God. They'd rather do what they want to do. And our churches have been accommodating that. Thanks for spending this time uh, with Calvary Chapel. Oops. Well, I didn't know it was going off that quickly. So, okay. Well, I guess I better sign off. God bless you guys. Paul will be back tomorrow. See you then. Calvary Chapel at CalvarySA.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.